Well, welcome everyone, and thank you to the worship team. And just as the service so far, um, we're, we're, we're calling into our attention, our focus, our ideas, our hearts, our minds, our souls together, um, but also up to God as we do this. Um, I did want to do one quick mention um, before we jump right into the sermon, which is this. I mean, if you've been watching the news, there has been um, a lot of tension between Israel and Palestine, and I want to simply just ask for God's focus, presence, and attention, and shalom to be there um, as, we, uh, as we engage this. So would you just pray with me one more time on that account? Father, we, um, we mourn the loss of life, whether it's Palestinian or Israeli. God, we mourn um, that, that we still live in a world that is wrought with tensions and struggle and conflict and war. And so, God, we pray this prayer as we have in our own uh, moments of tension here in the U.S. We pray for shalom, but we also pray maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Father, we, we long for the days, we remind ourselves today that things are not the way they are meant to be, and we remember that today, and we call you into this space through us, without us, miraculously, however it is that you want, Father, but we pray shalom and peace in that region, Father, as well as throughout the world, and we ask for this right now in Jesus' name, and all God's people said. Amen. 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 Thank you for joining me with that, y'all. Um, well, I'm Eric. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at Common Ground Northeast, and it's good to have y'all here. Welcome to the first week of fall break. I know there's a lot of people out and on vacations and doing various things, a lot of camping going on. So that, that weather changed quick, too. I don't know if they regret that decision, but should have been here is what the problem was. They should have been here this morning. Um, but we are doing this series called Me and We. Pastor Ken and I have been working on it for a while. Um, and uh, it's got multiple intersections. The ideas that we're trying to decide, like, like discern um, how our individual me's affect the broader we that is common ground northeast as a community and then vice versa. How there's a relationship reciprocal, one that we uh, pour into but that we are then shaped by this collective we that, that helps us become new me's. So all the voices need to be heard. All the voices shape the me and then we also surround and submit ourselves to that greater we as we learn from one another. And last week, um, Ken made the point that our individual me creates collectives, that, that me as a person likes to find someone else who's into the same things, who is like me in some way. And even in our small community, we will find our own little mini sub-collectives that are small we's inside of it that will often compete against each other. And so the idea is that we are not whole, like the prodigal son, uh, the family was divided. No matter whether it was the son who was angry that stuck around, no matter it was the one who left and took the inheritance, until we get back to that first line. That in the beginning, a man had two sons. That was not true until all were and brought back into completion. And so we're asking for that kind of unity here, even in the midst of our um, uh, inability at times to see that we're creating these little mini collectives. And today we're going to talk about something that's not at all controversial, politics. (laughs) Uh, I was hoping for a little more laughter out of that. Maybe you're like, ah, nah, bro. Um, so here, here's, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come at you from a specific angle that I think is helpful because when it comes to politics, and, and let me say too, this was a two-part, this will become a two-part series. We won't get back to it next week, but after the, the following week, because we originally wanted to speak about the individual um, conservative and progressive kind of sides of this coin, and then we realized before we can even talk about that, we have to talk about our citizenship in heaven to really frame that correctly. And so we're backing up one step. Um, And there's kind of two ways to appeal to you on this. One is out of expertise, 
And one, I think, that actually lends some credibility is naivety. And I'm going to appeal to you on both of these accounts, progressive um, uh, uh, and what's called liberal, Democrat, and or on the other side, conservative, Republican. Um, And so we're going to come back to that in our next swing. But before we get there, this is why I think um, naivety appeals, because I hope not to take sides in what I do. And, And here's one of the reasons why my household was not, uh, 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 was not I, I, to this day, I cannot tell you whether my family leaned in a more um, progressive or more conservative stance. I know where they're at now, at that time, and, and, then, and I know what changed that, but at that time, I could honestly tell you that I, di- I did not know what any of these terms were as a kid. They were completely 100% not on my radar. I didn't know what a Republican was. I didn't know what a Democrat was. I didn't know what a conservative was. There was no talk radio. I don't know what news channels my family presented. And, and backing that up, we weren't like an extremely um, patriotic family, although we loved it. We lived in Texas, man. Like you just buy citizenship in Texas. Like you got to go to the Air Force Base and watch the shows. You got to do all the fun things that you do. We celebrated major holidays. There was no anti-patriotism. But, but what I remember happening to me, this is a moment of conflict in my life, coming to this with like kind of this blank slate almost. I'm standing up on a, sat, on a Monday morning to say the Pledge of Allegiance. And for the first time, I have conflict in my mind. Why? Because the day before it, I got baptized. And inside of my baptismal confessional, there were words like allegiance and loyalty to which I willingly, after, after not growing up in the church, after coming to know God at 17, 16, 17 years old, after being in the church for one entire year, I decided I am for this. I'm going to become a Christian. I get baptized. And the next day, I'm standing up like the school does every morning. And I say, I pledge allegiance to the full stop. And there was conflict in my mind because it was too much like the allegiance I had just pledged the day before and told, God, you get my all. You get my life, my heart, my soul. Everything that is me is loyal to you now. So the question, can I pledge allegiance to anything after giving it to God? And in real time, I'm having this conflict. I remember seeing the Jehovah's Witness kid who never stood for the pledge. I'm like, oh, He gave me imagination to understand that maybe this wasn't something I had to do just by default. What are the implications of my citizenship in heaven? What does it do for us? Can I have allegiance to any country? Is my citizenship divided? And if that's true, are these citizenships opposed to one another or overlapping? It was a new tension to me. Like I said, I had no, absolutely no sociopolitical understanding that I was aware of. In any way, shape, or form, no allegiances, and here my loyalties are being challenged because of this statement that I pledge allegiance to something other than God. So these structures exist, even though I was unaware of them and still affected. It's not like I could fully remove that bias, right? I just don't know what it was. And so you have these structures competing, whether it's political parties, whether it's citizenship from different worlds, different countries. The question that we have to ask is, since they exist, these socio-political orders, we have to ask as Christians these questions. How do our loyalties and allegiances shift as citizens of heaven, as citizens of the United States? How does it functionally operate? 
Perhaps you've had some of these thoughts along the way. Maybe they're brand new to you. I'm not sure. But I think for many people in America, you grew up with this sense of thinking or assuming that Christianity and American sensibilities were overlapping. They were in sync. They were one and the same. And so if that's you today, I'm going to challenge that a little bit, but also call into question the idea that you have to be asking these questions, self-reflecting, evaluating these two worlds against each other. In either case, we get a chance today to examine our relationship with our earthly socio-political existence and our spiritual socio-political existence. And we have to do it with scriptural wisdom, right? We don't just to come at that with nothing. Um, today, I'm going to start with some basic information that I'm going to read a chunk of scripture to you, with you, out of Acts as we watch what Paul does with different citizenships in mind. Okay? It's a narrative, and I want to draw you into the drama of that, but it's going to be a long chunk of Scripture. I'm going to make some points along the way, but here's what I want to do. Let's just take stock of what we know, that the Scriptures in Philippians 3.19, I'm going to start like towards the end of that, into verse 21, says that their mind is set on earthly things. That's that last sentence right there. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in where? Heaven. And we eagerly await a what? Savior, from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now, there's other verses that support this. There's earlier in Philippians, the word, there's a, a word that's kind of translated in two different ways, but is the exact same word as citizenship here. Philippians 1.27, Ephesians 2.19. Then we can look at the life of Jesus, who politically operated and interacted with people all the time. So we use these words casually, the gospel, church, assembly. That word is ekklesia in Greek. We use the term Lord, all of these, all, hear me, all of these words are appropriating political entities, taking from them, co-opting them for their, oh, oh, you have your own good news? We have a good news. That's, that word's not from the Bible originally. That is us taking a political idea. The Lord Caesar has arrived and his euangelion, his good gospel is that you get air conditioning now. That's good news in a desert. And Jesus is like, oh, good, that's nice. That Pax Ramona is some decent news. I'm telling you, your eternal salvation is secure with me. He comes in to trump that idea. He says to them uh, in this thing, we are going to, you have your political ecclesia, now we have an ecclesia. Do you see what they're doing there? You have your own Lord, Caesar? No, we have a cosmic Lord, Jesus Christ. All of those statements are political. You can't read them without that. Jesus on money telling the people to give to Caesar what is his. We won't get into that, but we will next time we come back to this subject. Jesus interacts with Pilate and he asks him, are you a king? And Jesus ambiguously says, you said. What? Are you a king? You said. He doesn't give him an answer. We'll get more into that one as well, but this is what I want you to hear. When, G when Pilate asked that question, he was not asking a theological question. He wanted to know if he was a political king. Are you a threat to my dynasty? The second thing is that as a result of our citizenship, we are now foreigners. No matter how you want to take it in this day and age, no matter what land you inhabit, we are foreigners. It is our literal identity in Christ as being those who are 
here but not from here. This gives us a future. Hope that one day we will be home in a kingdom where everything is made right. All of the sociopolitical orders are created in a, in a way that is according to God's world. So there is no tears, there is no violence, and everything is saturated with God's love. But this also means that until that happens, every single church is an outpost. It's an embassy. It's a village that represents the kingdom. Every individual, that's our we, right? Catch that. And then our me is that we are individually responsible as roaming ambassadors and representatives that exist for the kingdom and its interests on this earth above every other value system, okay? This is like the, the obvious stuff that we know. This, is, this means our citizenship comes with its own political leader, Jesus he is considered divine, absolute in his sovereign capability, sent to earth in part to show us a way to live according to a biblical manifesto that we today call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' longest discourse, starting with the Beatitudes, and we often call it the upside-down kingdom. Why? Because it goes against everything we would naturally want to do. We want to advocate for ourselves. We want to do what's better for us. And this upside-down world pops in and says, I've got a different way for you to live and a different political, socio-political system that you are to follow. So we have to see that, and we also have to, to land on this. I wasn't sure if I want to cut this, but I think I, think I want to use it. Um, we have to make the point of trust. Since we have a king and a kingdom, we do not put our trust in any localized governance. We do not put our trust in political organizations or put our trust in any political person beyond Jesus. I'm going to say it again. As people who are kingdom citizens, we have a hope in a different place. We don't put our trust in local governing, governance, political organizations, or people beyond Jesus. We are intended to have a mindset that is above earthly things. That being said, we live in reality, and the decisions we make here affect real people in real life. Does that make sense? Both of those things are true, and it's a tension we live in. It's not one or the other, and at times you will have to leverage your citizenship on earth in order to establish this upside-down kingdom. Why? Why is this so hard for us? Because we have dual citizenship. We are here. I am a U.S. citizen. And I'm also a kingdom citizen. And with that comes certain power and status, rights and privileges, or a lack thereof, depending on your standing in a given country. And so what I want to do is land on this one idea that Paul, in, in kind of this amazing little case study, gives us how he interacts with both of these two worlds and not compromising either one, but always keeping the kingdom of heaven as its priority. So specifically for Paul, listen, as a citizen of Rome, he has the ability to interact and vote in Roman politics. He has the ability and the right to prosecute in court. He has the right to appeal to the highest court of Rome held by the emperor. As a citizen of Rome, he could avoid certain punishments like whipping and crucifixion, and they did not receive the death penalty as long as they didn't commit treason. Okay, those are his earthly rights. Now I want you to pay close attention at how Paul uses this citizenship. Go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 22. Acts 22. Actually, 21 is where we're starting. Sorry, you're probably freaking out up there. Acts chapter 21. 
And we're going to read again a significant chunk. Immerse yourself in the drama. Catch everything that's going on in here. And I wanted to say this too. If you grew up um, not in like a cleaned up suburb, but more in kind of a street sense, um, some of this should be very familiar. The way this plays out and the coding and different things that play out in here. And I can't not read the scriptures like this. There's parts of this that's like, man, Paul's being funny right there. He's, he's just straight up punking people out to their face right now. And, and at times I think we get too academic and we lose that. I want to point all that stuff out to you today. Paul finally is coming back. He's been on all these missionary journeys. He's going to Jerusalem. His friends say, don't go there. They're going to kill you. And he's like, I'm going to roll the dice and see what happens. Okay? He starts to speak about Jesus. The entire city, specifically those who are in the Jewish community, go nuts. And I want you to pay attention to how he leverages every bit of his social and political affiliation. Acts 21, verse 30. Did I get it right from the beginning? Perfect. It says, The whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. What does that tell you? Read between the, between the lines. Shady business. You start closing gates, that means there are people that you don't want to see what's happening, Right? Verse 31, while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and, and, and some other another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. All right, so you have this commander who drops in because in this local Jewish conflict, it has risen to such a level of disruption, the Roman officials have to get involved, right? They don't even know what's going on. Like, what did you do? What did he do? Oh, he said, you're saying, what, what is, why are you beating this man to death in our streets? Who are you and what the heck is going on here? Verse 35, it says, when Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. That means he got beat up. He got kicked on the ground. He's bloody. The crowd that followed him kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? So a beaten, bloodied Paul asked a simple question, but, and it's about to reveal it, what he says is done in a specific way that captures this person's attention. This is the reply, do you speak Greek? He replied, Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Weird caveat, right? There's some random business going on, and now you know without a shadow of a doubt this guy has no clue what's going on. He's like picking news titles and just applying it to this guy. Well, surely he's some dude from Egypt. Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia. Catch this. A citizen of what? No what? No ordinary city. He wants him to really pay attention to that. A citizen of no, uh, sorry, I'm a Jew from Tar Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. And he wants to address the people. Okay, verse 40. After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps, motioned to the crowd, and when they were silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became very quiet. Okay, pause for just a second. 
At this point, we have layer upon layer upon layer of authority and rank and shame and honor that are being played, revealed even very subtly. Instead of just trying to pull rank, it's being revealed very coded in like, I'm going to speak to you in this language and then this guy to this language. And if you were a person in this crowd, I'm telling you, this is so wild. You're like, I knew it was going to be a festival weekend, but this is nuts. And they're watching this play out. They're looking at this. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a Jewish man in chains. And the, and the Roman people weren't fans of the Jewish people. So they're like, ah, eh, you know, it's not our business, but who, you know, who cares at this point? Then speaking to the Greek, speaking Greek to the Roman authorities, he, he causes them to stop and be like, well, how, do, how does he know Greek? And if you're in the audience, you're like, oh, ooh. Oh, oh, now he's speaking to, he's the Egyptian terrorist. He, he's even worse than what we thought. He's actually causing revolts. He's a revolutionary. Let's kill him for that reason. And then he's like, no, 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 he's not that guy. He's not Egyptian. He's from Tarsus. Well, Tarsus is a free city. I mean, it's not quite a colony of Rome, so it doesn't have rights like that, but it's also not under Roman rule because of something that happened in history. So when he points that out and makes sure they recognize it, he's placing himself socially. Wait, now he's speaking Aramaic to the crowd? This is what I want you to see. Like, they knew it was going to be a wild weekend because there's already a bunch of people there who aren't normally there, but this thing just went bonkers, right? You're a crowd person. You're like, all right, grab me a chair and pop the popcorn. I want to see how this plays out. This is wild what's happening on these steps and then in the temple and then dragging him to the steps. They're going back and forth with all this stuff. So check this out. Then Paul does this. I am a Jew. He's going to clarify, right? I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Why? Because they're killing people in the streets. And Paul has killed people in the streets. So to the Jewish people, Paul explains, I am not just a Jewish man. I'm a highly, highly educated Jewish man. Verse 4 says, I persecuted the followers of the way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prison as the high priest and all the council can themselves attest. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is sitting there like, I'm not just a Jewish man. I am an educated Jewish man who is very well known as a Jewish leader and I am aggressively committed to the agenda that I have been championing on your behalf. In fact, your leaders can testify. Go ask them. They're the ones that gave me the papers to do what I was trying to do. So Paul goes on and he explains his encounter then He's got their attention. They've all hushed up. He's made points. He's subtly communicating all of these things, but he's still holding one thing back. All right? Still one thing that could stop him from getting kicked and beaten. He's holding it back, though. He's not using it. Jesus then goes on and tells about his encounter with Jesus. Or, uh, sorry, Paul goes on and tells him about his encounter with Jesus, where he gets knocked off the horse and his entire conversion. This is a brilliant part of Scripture that I don't have time to get into because it's not the point of today. But when he comes back from that, when he comes back from proclaiming Jesus as king, this is what happens. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this, this being that Jesus is Lord. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. Kill this man, right? Verse 23, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, which is like a first century, not, I'm not just mad, I'm real mad, Right? I'm going to toss dust in the air. I don't fully get the implications, but you see what they're doing. It's escalating. The commander ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. He's got to get him safe. 
He directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. He wants to know the truth, and he's willing to beat him even further to find out. Verse 25, as they stretched him out to flog him, he's about to get beat. Paul said to the centurion standing there, check this out. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? The guard is floored. And at any point, Paul could have revealed this information. He knows now that Paul is a Roman and has Roman rights. And as a citizen, the guard can be held liable and punished for hurting him before he has a chance at a fair trial. He has put these guys in a really difficult position. It's this bit of information that he's been withholding until the exact right moment. And I think we have to stop and say, man, Paul, sometimes you're more savvy than maybe I give you credit for. His friends pleaded with him not to go. Don't go back there. And he's like, I'm going to play this just right. Just you wait and see. Well, you're getting beat. Yeah, I know. I've got this all in the right, right frame of mind. Verse 26 says this. When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He asked, this man is a Roman citizen. The commander says, goes, uh, the commander went to Paul and asked him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Paul says, yes, I am, he answered. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul says, but I was born a citizen. Paul replied, those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately, and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day, what does he do? He passes the buck, released them, and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Okay, don't miss this, because here is the Eric Thien paraphrase of what just happened. He just out-citizenshipped the commander of the Roman centurion guard to his face. It's like he's doing it like he's casually drinking tea on a Tuesday morning, not being flogged, not being stretched out to be flogged, not having been beaten already in the streets. He's dropping this ace in the hole that he's been holding up his sleeve until just the right moment so that it would play out. Then he's sitting there like playing these people. Cool, calm, stressless. The guard says to the commander, wait, he's a Roman citizen? Are you for real? And he looks at Paul, he's like, are you a Roman citizen? Yeah, yeah, I am. Yep, I am. To which, you're, if you're the Romans, you're like, you should have started with that, man. Bro, like, tell us, if you're a Roman citizen, none of this had to happen. You put us in a really bad situation. We, couldn't have, we, been, we could have been in a situation where none of this happened. But the thing is, Paul wanted it to happen. He wanted to draw them into this situation. They don't know what to do, so they just order, defer him back to the Jewish leaders. All right, I got a couple more things I'm going I'm to um, read um, because I think they're important. I, I know it's a lot of scripture. Just stay with the narrative. I'm going to move quickly here. It's a couple more things. Verse 23, uh, sorry, chapter 23, verse 1. Paul looks straight at the Sanhedrin. All right, think steely-eyed, right? He's there and you got the, the you know, that was a horrible, right? This showdown moment is happening. Someone else did it better. Thank you. My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Check this out. This is where it gets good. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck 
Those who are standing near Paul said, how dare you insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I didn't know. I didn't realize that it was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. One more paraphrase. Paul's feeling a little salty, decides to mouth off to this group of people. He gives them a little attitude, and then he gets popped in the mouth for it. To which Paul roasts this dude. He's like dropping ether on these people, destroying everyone in the room. Do you understand what he's ha- what's happening here? High priest is sitting there. They're looking like, dude, this is a high priest. You've got to put some respect on his name. And he's like, you know what? My bad. That was all, all, my, that's on me. I'll take that one, right? My bad. Do you see how this is playing out? I didn't know he was the high priest. I'm going to back up. He gets some respect for that. Then here, when Paul, knowing that some of them were what? What's that word? Sadducees. And others were what? Pharisees. That's two. Called out in the? That's three. My brothers, I am a? Pharisee. We have four political entities on the scene. Descended from a Pharisee. I stand on trial because the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was what? divided. The Sadducees say that there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits. But the, you could attribute that to one side of one party right now, today. That tracks. And then the Pharisees disagree. The Pharisees believe all these things. There is a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. You got this room full of people arguing back and forth now. We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn into pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him from them by force and bring him to the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul. It's like he's, like, see this scene. It's like he's dapping him up in the back room. Take me to Jerusalem so you must testify. He's, He's like, Take courage. Well done, Paul. I, I, was, I, was, I was, you know, I don't know, Jesus is in his unseen bodily form, just floating around, doing whatever he's doing, but he's watching Paul work this crowd, doing exactly what he should be doing with both citizenships together in tension, and he goes back, and following night, the Lord stood near Paul and says, take courage, like, you did it. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. This is just the beginning. Let's go to Rome and do it all over again. Okay, he used a theological argument, just tossed it out in front of these politicians. And they start arguing. He knew they didn't agree. He knew they would get sidetracked and not be able to finish what they were doing. He throws it out there. And as they're arguing about theology and politics, as Jesus is giving him a congratulations, like, bro, you did this thing. He gets a one-way ticket to Rome, paid for by the Roman government, so he can proclaim the gospel to uh, even higher officials and even higher courts so that they too would know the gospel of Jesus Christ. How do you read that any other way than you're like, y'all just got played out by Paul. You did everything, you did everything he wanted you to do. And now the world is going to know that Jesus is king because of it. So here, this, if there's one thing I want you to hear from this today, it's how Paul views and uses his earthly citizenship like a tool in light of his heavenly citizenship. And as we examine the way Paul interacts in all of these situations, I've tried to point out to you all of these different ideas. There is one value that arises to the surface over and over and over again. It's that Paul uses every bit of his social and political capital to display the gospel of Jesus. 
He does everything in his power to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. He does everything, takes the beatings, interacts, gives information, withholds information, uses everything in his social political power to make Jesus known to as many people as possible and to the most influential people that he can get to so that God will be known and his love will be saturating everything, everywhere to the extent of his possibility. That's the one point for today. Do you see his priority? His relationship with his Roman citizenship, his educational standing, his fame, his rights, his authorities, any other affiliation as a Pharisee, it all serves to a means, as a means to an end. That's it. And so here, here's just one common question. I have three. I'm going to skip the others and, and come back to them later. Is our earthly citizenship just useless? Is it meaningless? Is it, does it not matter? And if you heard me say that, then you did not hear me correctly. It, it's both. Like you, it's not like you just live in this neutral, lukewarm middle. It is like of high, high importance so that you can do earthly good, so that you can proclaim the gospel, right? And we're going to talk about earthly good in the next round of this. But it's also worthless in so much as it doesn't accomplish those things. Paul's citizenships and rights are nothing more and nothing less than a tool and an end to a means of proclaiming the scriptures and establishing the kingdom. Now, the question really comes to what are the values of the kingdom? And we'll get into more of that next time. But here's, here's, here's how I want to end. Um, because I want to give one more example from history as we close. Um, I, uh, I used to pledge allegiance <laughs> to the flag. Um, but then I performed a covenant sacrament of baptism for Jesus, who's my king in heaven, and I live for his kingdom now. All other loyalties and allegiances, I believe, were subservient to that. And so today I don't say it. I'm not rude. I don't think it's a problem if you have a different conviction, but you'll see me stand and put my hands behind my back. I just don't say the Pledge of Allegiance. I can't do those words. I can't, it's my conviction that we can't stand for those two things and say them at the same time. I stand for it. I'm respectful, but I have only one allegiance to a king and a kingdom. And so much as America exists, it is a means to an end for me to do that business. That's it. It's, it's a, we, we usually get 200 years as an empire on this earth, right? If you look at history, we're overdue. And the thing is, my kingdom isn't going anywhere even if that happens because that's not where my hope and faith is. So here's the lesson. Prioritize the gospel above all. You have to come to a, a point of conviction of what that means. I've drawn my own lines. So we could talk about that um, if you want to. Uh, but there is this sense about us understanding how to keep those things in balance. And so the obvious questions, I'm going to throw out the questions just to throw them out there. I won't answer them. Is it possible to be a good patriot and a good Christian? You'll have to come back for next time. Is it possible, or was, is or was Christ, America a Christian nation? Um, that's a question, right, out there. Uh, we'll have to come back to that one because we just don't have time today. But here's what I want to do is give you this last story. I got it from Tim Keller who quoted it from a different book um, because, because um, here's a way in which Christians um, use their social political power that's not the Bible, that's not Jesus, because sometimes that feels unreachable. 
Two centuries after Christ was here, there were plagues all over the, the, in the cities. People with money fled for the hills, but Christians decided to stay and essentially became a new social public health movement. They did that themselves. And then an excerpt from Rodney Stark's book, The Rise of Christianity, quotes the words of Dionysius. This is a direct quote of an eyewitness during the time responding to Christians. He was a bishop in, 2000, in 200, sorry. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ and with them departed his life serenely happy, for they were infected by the neighbors and cheerfully accepted their, plan, their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died on their, in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in the manner, a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendations so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. That's a brilliant way of leveraging your rights and your power and your social standing to care for others to the extent of exchanging your well-being for the others. They had nothing to gain. The book goes on to talk about how they took in widows when everyone else put them out on the street. And so it was a strong female presence in the first century church. They, when the people were dividing between races, the church was like, no, we're good with you and you because our citizenship is there. And you, and you, and you, and you, all of you can come. And there's all this criticism on the outside of like, man, these people really know how to care for the poor. They'll take anyone. They don't care about so casting. They're critiquing them. They don't care about caste systems and money and standing in the social political order. They just don't care. We have to stop them. Do you see how that becomes a political threat eventually? The same one that Pharaoh gave and the same one that Herod gave. So let's pray. Um, because I want to challenge us to these ideas of prioritization. Um, but I want you to agree with them. I don't want this just to be something you hear and maybe agree with or don't agree with and talk to me either way. Um, but what I want it to be is something that soaks into us and changes the way we operate with the world around us. Um, so let's pray for that. Father, we thank you for not just the idea of citizenship in heaven, but the example of Paul and Jesus, which we'll get into, and how Jesus, you interacted in the social political orders of that day. We have our king, we have our Lord, we have our good news, and, and our euangelion. We have our assembly of the ecclesia, Father. We have our ambassadorship in Christ. Everything else is, is rubbish, as Paul says in so much as it accomplishes the agenda of the values of the kingdom of heaven. So, so deep into us, God, help us know where we're wrong on issues of the kingdom. Help us to know where we're right on issues of the kingdom. Help us to know that we operate in love and mercy and we operate in justice. So give us correct conviction and God, we're putting our hearts, our minds, our souls on the altar to say, correct anything that I've brought to the table as an assumption already. Correct me. And then convict me so that I will have courage to do everything you tell me to do. No matter whether it takes me behind the gates of the temple or to the steps of the barricades. Because eventually it takes me to the high courts of Rome if I'm obedient. 
So Father, help us in this. Help us to prioritize a kingdom that our citizenship is found in you and only you and your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen, amen.